Now, chapter 4 that we come to now is a new division. We have here the vacuity and vapidness of worldliness. And what is worldliness? Actually, he deals with many questions here. You have, how do you really fight the devil? And what is your life? It all anchors back in this subject of worldliness. Now, what is worldliness then? And here is what he says. Now, the average person today, and I think the average Christian in our so-called fundamental churches, especially when we talk about how separated we are from the world, I think that they'd give an answer that might be something like this. They would say, it's the kind of amusements that you attend. What kind of amusements do you indulge in? What kind of movies do you go to? Do you dance? Do you drink? And they would call that worldliness if you did that. May I say to you at the offset, James would not agree with you. Somebody else says, well, it's the kind of crowd you run with, the gang you hang around with. After all, birds of a feather flock together, and if you are with a worldly crowd that are engaged in these things, then you are worldly. I'm sorry to have to tell you, and I've said that James takes you to college. If you give that as the answer in James College, you'd fail. You would bust the course. You wouldn't pass it. Then somebody else says, it's the conversation you engage in. You must learn to say praise the Lord and hallelujah at the right time. And therefore, that's what worldliness is when you have a worldly conversation. And again, you fail the course. And somebody else says, well, it's the way that you dress. And I have news for you. You still haven't passed the course. Somebody else says, well, it's a person who engages in business and making of money to the exclusion of all else, and he neglects the church. He's a worldly individual. I have news for you. You didn't pass the course in James College. And then somebody else says, well, it's the person who does not go to church but spends time on the golf course, fishing, boating, and goes out to watch the Dodgers play baseball. Now, my friend, I don't approve of any of the things that I've mentioned, but that just doesn't happen to be worldliness. Most of those sins are sins of the flesh. And if you put down any one of these or all of them, you flunk the exam. You fail the subject. You busted the courts, by the way. Now, I have here the answers of James. None of them are right. Now, they may be symptoms of the disease, but nobody ever died of symptoms. You die of the disease. And these are evidences of something that's deeper. Henry Ward Beecher had a brother, a pastor in upper New York, and there was a clock in the church that never would keep time. And so the brother Henry Ward Beecher put a sign under that clock. It says, don't blame the hands. The trouble lies deeper. And I think that's the thing that we need to recognize today, that what we call worldliness is the hands, but the trouble is back down deeper. And frankly, my feeling is that Thackeray, who, by the way, was a Christian, I think that he probably dealt with this in a way that 
No one else has dealt with it. And I'm going to mention something he wrote. He wrote a novel called Vanity Fair. It is of the world. And by the way, Thackeray was a Christian. And he wrote that novel on the background of the wars of Napoleon. And he presents characters that are all filled with weakness and littleness and pettiness and jealousy and envy and discord and strife. All of that is there in the background of the wars of Napoleon. And someone asked Thackeray one time, says, why don't you have some wonderful heroes in your novels? You always present little people. And he says, I hold a mirror up to nature, and I do not find heroes among mankind. They are filled with littleness and pettiness and strife and sin. And when you get to the end of Vanity Fair, he does a masterly thing. He says, come now, show is over. Let's put the puppets back in the box. The play is ended. That's man, as Shakespeare said, he struts and puffs his way across the stage of life, filled with worldliness. Now, Dr. Griffith Thomas pinned it down a little closer. A person that was very much distressed one day came to him and says, don't you think that the world is becoming Christian today? And Dr. Griffith Thomas says, no, I don't think that. I think the world is becoming a little churchy, but I think the church is becoming immensely worldly. Now, I think that this gives us a background for what we're going to see here. Since World War II, there has been a breakdown of the wall of separation between church and state. And the separation that many had was legalistic and, I think, unscriptural. The church was like the little Dutch boy keeping its finger or thumb in the dike. Then we had the aftermath of the war. TV came along, lawlessness and immorality, juvenile delinquency, first the beatniks, then the hippies, and then dope, marijuana, and even worse than that, and then the philosophy of existentialism, and then a tidal wave swept over the dikes of separation, and even the little Dutch boy was washed away. Now, there's no simple answer to the question, but I'm going to let James give us here, I think, a very definitive answer. And it is something that we're going to see. What is worldliness? Well, worldliness, actually, if you want to pin it down, it's strife and envy. And that is the thing he's saying here. Now, you remember that he said back in chapter 3, verse 13, "...who's a wise man endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good life his works with meekness of wisdom." Faith is the major in this university, and all elective courses are related to faith. Now, works of faith does what? It brings meekness. And that is the thing he talks about here. Wisdom that is pure, it's gentle, it's peaceful. And there's meekness. Someone has put it like this. Knowledge is proud that she's learned so much. Wisdom is humble 
that she knows no more. And humility means submission. And then you have here, he presents this, there's bitter envying and strife in your hearts. That's worldliness. And what does it lead to in the church? Well, it's produced all the cults. It's actually produced all the denominations, factions, and divisions, and a spirit of rivalry, and cults and cliques that have risen and abound in the church today, a zeal, a jealousy, factions, and divisions. And he defines this as earthly, that is, it's confined to the earth. It's sensual, that is, it's psychological. You see, the eggheads today do not know, actually, everything that's to be known. And they don't know what comes first even the chicken or the egg, and they're eggheads. And then it's devilish. And my friend, when we talk about it being devilish, it is something that is quite terrible, by the way. And what does it produce in this world? It produces confusion. And we need to recognize what he's saying here then. Now, there are two things that we need to have in mind as we enter this next chapter. And that is that if you're a child of God today, that tongue that you have is going to be used for a blessing for others. The tongue can be a blessing or it can be a curse. It can be either way. A very whimsical story is told about a famous chef that a wealthy man had. And he said, I'm having guests tonight and I want you to serve up the most wonderful recipe that you have. And so that night he served tongue for the cocktail, tongue for the entree, and tongue for dessert. And the owner called this chef in and says, what do you mean? Well, he says, you asked me to serve the greatest that I could serve, and here it is. Well, he says, what do you mean it's the greatest? Well, he says, the tongue can cause more strife. It can cause more sorrow. It can actually ruin a man's character. And therefore, it is, without doubt, the most potent. And then he says, all right, tomorrow night, serve me that which is the very best that does the most good. And lo and behold, the next night, he had tongue for a cocktail, tongue for the entree, and tongue for the dessert. And again, he called him in. Well, he says, not only does the tongue do evil, the tongue can do good. It can be a blessing. The tongue can... Help and comfort, you see, so that that's exactly what James is talking about here. And there must be righteousness before there can be peace. I wish that this could get into the United Nations. I wish this could get into Washington and Moscow and Pekin, China, and in all the other capitals of the world today, that you can't have peace and righteousness. There's a day coming when the psalm says that peace and righteousness, they have kissed each other. Huh. They don't even know each other today, and they wouldn't even recognize each other today. Moving now into the fourth chapter, and we come here into something that I think is quite important to know today. What is really worldliness? What is worldliness? And let me read the first verse here. From where 
come wars and fightings among you. Come they not here even of your lusts that war in your members? Ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain, ye fight and war, yet ye have not because ye ask not. And wars have to do actually with the wars of nations. Fightings have to do with little skirmishes, that little fight that you had in the church, you remember? Come, they not hear even of your lusts that war in your members? You wanted to have your way. Ye lust and have not. And you have an overweening desire. There is a lack of knowledge. And we need to recognize that, first of all, you must be born again. You must be regenerated. And now that faith in Christ that regenerated, and now you're indwelt by the Spirit of God. These are the things that represented the old nature that you had. Ye lust and have not. Ye kill and you desire to have and ye cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not because ye ask not. Now, what is the answer to this? This, you see, is the spirit of the world. When the spirit of the world gets into the church, you have, as Dr. Griffith Thomas put it, you have a worldly church. What is a worldly church that's going in for amusements? Well, I don't approve of a lot of things modern churches are doing, but back of that is strife and envy. My friend, you think it's bad out on the battlefield? Did you think it was bad in Vietnam? Well, it was but inside some churches and the hearts of some individuals there. In the business world, you see it's competition. Not long ago, a man that left this area to go back east said to me, I'm leaving an area where it's dog-eat-dog. Dog. Competition in the business world. That's worldliness. Political parties split, and one group is pitted against another. You see it in capital and labor today. And you see them meeting around a conference table. It's a battle that's going on. You see it in the social world today. There are social climbers on the social ladder, and they are stepping on the hands of others as they go up. It's in your neighborhood and my neighborhood. One family does not speak to another family. And it's in family quarrels, brother against brother. And then that spirit gets into the church. That, my friend, is worldliness. The have-nots. You desire and you have not. These are the have-nots. I want to share with you today something I've shared before. I carry it in the back of my Bible everywhere I go, and every now and then I get it out and read it. And I've certainly attempted to incorporate this in my prayer life. What is the cure of worldliness? Primarily, it's prayer. Faith, therefore, in God. And John put it like that. This is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith, or even the faith. It is absolutely trusting God and going to Him in prayer and committing that which is in your heart. And when you find that there's strife and envy there, talk to Him about it. Many of us, we go to the Lord and tell Him how good we are, and because we've been good little boys and girls and we went to Sunday school, He ought to give us a lollipop or a brownie pin or something like that. 
Now, let's get right down to the nitty-gritty, friends, where we live today. Will you listen to this? And this was written by a great saint, a mystic of the Middle Ages, Fenelon. I'm reading it. Tell God all that's in your heart. As one unloads one's heart, its pleasures and its pains, to a dear friend, tell him your troubles, that he may comfort you. Tell him your joys, that he may sober them. Tell him your longings, that he may purify them. Tell him your dislikes, that he may help you to conquer them. Talk to him of your temptations, that he may shield you from them. Show him the wounds of your heart, that he may heal them. Lay bare your indifference to good, your depraved taste for evil, your instability. Tell him how self-love makes you unjust to others, how vanity tempts you to be insincere, how pride disguises you to yourself as to others. If you thus pour out all your weaknesses, needs, troubles, there'll be no lack of what to say. You'll never exhaust the subject. It's continually being renewed. People who have no secrets from each other never want subjects of conversation. They do not weigh their words, for there is nothing to be held back. Neither do they seek for something to say. They talk out of the abundance of the heart without consideration just what they think. Blessed are they who attain to such familiar, unreserved intercourse with God. I was laid aside, as many of you know, with hepatitis for some time, and I found out all things work together for good. It enabled me and my wife because we found ourselves sitting at home for a longer period of time than we had ever done since we got married. We started out on our honeymoon, and on our honeymoon I tried out at a church. And from that day to this, we've been running. And there were some things we needed really to talk over that maybe it could have been misunderstood at the first, you see. And we had wonderful talks, and we just laid bare our hearts to each other, and it's the most wonderful experience. And as I said to her every night, I said, Honey, this is more wonderful than our honeymoon was. Well, may I say to you, friends, that's a relationship we ought to have with God. And if I may be personal again, after I read this and studied the Word of God, I came to the conclusion I was going to tell the Lord Jesus everything. And friends, I have talked to him in such a way that if he told the authorities today what I've told him, I guess they'd send me to the penitentiary. But he knows, he understands, he's forgiven, and I've told him everything. Now, the only thing in the world, friends, that can take that envy and jealousy and strife out of your heart and that restlessness that's there today, you don't need to go to the psychiatrist. He'll just move your problem from one area to another. What you need to do is to get rid of that hang-up. It's just to go to the Lord Jesus, get on his couch, and tell him everything. Now, that's what he's saying here is the solution to this thing here. And that's the reason today that you and I, we pray, but we pray for selfish ends, as he says here, to satisfy our own lusts. And then we are willing to compromise with the world in order to attain our goal. 
And he calls us an adulterer and adulteress. The friendship of the world is enmity with God. I never would in any church I've ever served, and I've been in little towns, I never would join any of the clubs like the lions and the moose or the elk or any of the other animals, the rotary club. I just never joined them. I've been asked to join. I've been asked to join lodges. I don't join them. And I tell you the reason why. I have enough trouble with worldliness in the church. I don't need to join a worldly organization. Now, listen to him. He's going to continue to talk now. Verse 5 of chapter 4 of James. Will you listen to him? Do you think that the Scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? What are we trying to do? Kid ourselves today that we are nice, sweet little folk and that there's no envy and jealousy in our hearts? I heard a woman say one time, she says, well, I have a very wonderful husband. He's not jealous of me. I tell you, I want you to know that there's something wrong if the husband's not jealous of his wife. He's to be that way. And God says he's jealous of us today also. But what about jealousy in the wrong way? Jealous that you and I didn't get elected to a committee or didn't get recognition in the church. And we cause strife with these tongues of ours. May I say to you, he says, why don't you go to the Lord Jesus and tell him your problem? Get on his couch and tell him everything. That's the solution to your problem, friend. But wait a minute. He has some more things to say. But he giveth more grace, wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but he giveth grace unto the humble. Now, we've said this again and again. God is overloaded with grace. You and I just don't know how gracious he is. And he has abundance of grace. Grace means unmerited favor, but I call it love in action. God couldn't save us for love. He gave his son, and now by grace... And he's got so much of it. Somebody says, oh, I'm so wrong on the inside. Go and tell him you're wrong on the inside and ask him for grace to overcome it. He'll give you grace. He's the living Christ up there for you. Now, there's something on our side, remember. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Now, you go to a doctor and submit to him. My doctor gave me when I was sick a half a dozen prescriptions to take. I didn't know a man might have been poisoning me, but I had faith in him. And I took his pills, and they helped me. I submitted to him. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Submit to him, and resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Now, a great many people says, well, how in the world am I going to resist the devil? Well, we're dealing now with something that's very practical. He says that we need a little more grace, you see, because he gives grace to the humble, and you'll not be able to do it in your own strength. You and I are surrounded by evil influences, and Christians are not alone in this. Temptation, as we've seen on every hand, God supplies this grace as needed, and he supplies that he has never runs out. You see, this is yours, God says. You are to lay hold of it. Now, Some today may doubt the surplus of grace. May I say to you, all the medicine in the world won't cure the sick. The remedy must be taken, the bottle of medicine. God has the grace 
lay hold of it. There may be a wonderful spring right in front of you. You may be dying of thirst. You've got to appropriate it. You've got to put your mouth down in that water or lap it up like a dog. May I say to you that you don't blame soap and water because dirty people are in the world, do you? There's plenty of water and soap today to clean you up. God resisteth the proud. He giveth grace to the humble. And this is the kind of container that the grace of God must be carried in, uh, must be carried in an humble individual. He says, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. God gets to the door of your heart and he won't come any farther. He knocks and you've got to let him in. And that's the only way he's going to get in, my friend. By the way, Martin Luther, one time he threw an inkwell at the devil. Well, somebody says that is a crazy thing to do. Not if you're resisting the devil. And the way to do is draw near to God. That's the answer. And he'll flee from you. Because the devil doesn't like God as a company. And the devil doesn't get to you unless you get too far away. You see, a wolf never attacks a sheep as long as he's with the rest of the sheep and with the shepherd. And the closer he is to the shepherd, the safer that he is. The problem with us is we get too far from God. Now he says here, Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. There are certain conditions that call for mourning, not for joy. Sin is never to be treated lightly, my friend. When I hear a Christian today make light of sin, I have a sneaking notion that at the side, when nobody's looking, he's indulging in it. You don't treat sin lightly. You mourn over your sin. And that's the problem today. Now, someone has said, We've had some great evangelistic meetings here in our day, and now there are several outstanding evangelists out. Now, why isn't there revival in the church? I think that I can give you just some little inkling of it. I don't mean I have the solution. I just mean here's something for you to think about, because James is telling this to us here. What is the problem today? I can remember Dr. John Brown, who was one of the greatest evangelists in the past. I was sitting on his front porch back in Salem Springs, Arkansas, many years ago. I asked him the question, why is it even way back there that evangelism was not reviving the church as it did in his day? He says, well, he said, you know, call me Dr. McGee. He says, Dr. McGee, I held a great meeting in Pasadena where you live. And he says, I had a tent on the corner of Washington and Holliston Street. There was a big vacant lot there at the time. And I had a tent. He said, I preached six weeks to Christians before I ever attempted to give an altar call for the unsaved. And revival came to the church. I came to a church in Pasadena where you could still see the effects of the meeting of that man in the church. Why? Well, for the very simple reason, my friend, that sin had been dealt with in the lives of believers. And that's the problem today, that there is a refusal to deal with it. We need to mourn today over certain situations. And we need to humble yourselves, as he says in verse 10, in the sight of God, and he'll lift you up. 
That's our problem today. We think we're smart. We think we're strong. We think we have ability. We think we're good. God says there's no good within us. There's nothing in us that attracts him. That is the way of goodness. It's just our great need. And if we're willing to humble ourselves, get down where he can lift us up, he'll lift us up. You know, when a fellow is out drowning, I noticed one time a soft lifeguard take his fist, hit a fellow and knocked him out. Why? He was struggling. He said he couldn't help him until that fellow gave up. And God, I think, sometimes has to give us the fist for us to just give up and let him take over. Now, he says, Speak not evil one to another, brethren. He that speaketh evil of his brother and judgeth his brother speaketh evil of the law and judgeth the law. But if thou judge the law, thou art not a doer of the law, but a judge. In other words, who do you think you are when you begin to talk like that? Who do you think you are? You are moving in the position of God. There are two types of people today that take the position of God. One is the sinner says, I'm good enough to be saved. And he says, Lord, I don't need your salvation. You just move over. I'm going to move up and sit on the side of you because I am my own Savior. And God says, he's the only Savior. But this fellow says, move over, God. I want to sit down by the side of you. I can save myself. And then here's the other fellow today. He sits in judgment on everybody else. Doesn't judge himself but he judges everybody else. And what he's saying, judgment is for God. Even God the Father said, I've committed all judgment to the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this man of Christian says to the Lord Jesus, you move over. I'm going to help you. We're going to have a supreme court, and I'm going to be one of the judges. We've got a lot of those today. Boy, what a supreme court. The church could furnish him today. But, you know, you judge yourself, and you go to him and go in humility. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who art thou that judges another? Well, what's the big idea? Where do you get the idea you can sit in judgment on others? Now, verse 13. And may I say this, and I want to say it kindly. I read a great many letters. Our mail is fabulous, but every reader sends to me every letter criticism. I want to know. And the very interesting thing is, that when I start reading some letters, I never finish them. I pitch them in a the wastebasket. One came the other day, about ten pages, started in. Now, Dr. McGee, I like your teaching, but you need to recognize that you have made a terrible mistake. Well, I handle those personally with the Lord Jesus, not with you, because he's my judge and you are not. So I put the letter in the wastebasket. I file it here in this square file that I have. Now, let's keep reading. Come now, ye that say today or tomorrow we'll go into such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. And here's something else Christians do, making these big plans for the future. I've learned, it took me a long time in life to get to this place, that I just play it by ear. And today, I, oh, I accept engagements ahead, but when I got this hepatitis, I had to cancel some, and I hated to cancel them. And I thought of this passage of Scripture here. Come now, ye that say, today or tomorrow we'll go into such a city and hold a Bible conference. 
we'll have a wonderful time, and we believe it's the Lord's will. That's not exactly what it says here, but it's what God said to me. Verse 14, "...whereas ye know not what shall be on the next day." You don't know. For what is your life? What is your life? Well, it's even a vapor that appeareth for the little time and then vanishes away. For ye ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. But now you rejoice in your boastings. All such rejoicing is evil. Therefore, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it's sin. And there are a great many people today that are sinning and don't know it. If you know to do good in certain cases, that you should do certain things, should help a certain cause, and you don't do it, that is sin, my friend. But let's come back here to see what is your life. Well, actually, your life is just, he says here, is a vapor or a fog. Have you noticed that? It's like a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. Well, we have a lot of it here on the West Coast. You can have a marvelous day. The water in the ocean is as blue as indigo. And the sky above is almost as blue and everything is just wonderful. And then you stop at a motel for the night and you get up the next morning and everything is covered with fog. And it's a ground fog. And you don't start out early because you hear on the radio that there's been traffic accidents during the night. Planes are grounded. Now, human life lived apart from and without God is the most colossal failure in God's universe. Everything else serves a long and useful purpose. The sun in the sky prodigal of its energy. We only get a little of it on this. The moon serves a purpose. Many of you fellas got married because of that moon up there. It serves a purpose. And the poet is the one who said, only man is vile down here. Human life is out of joint, dislocated, and it's a colossal failure. And I could mention many reasons, but one of the reasons is the brevity of human life down here. You only get three score and ten, and then if you get any more, it's with aches and pains, and aches and pains get to you before then. All the brevity of human life down here. And many of us really never learn to live down here upon the earth. And because of that, you and I today ought not to spend our time in strife and envy and jealousy spoils a life, you see. Oh, to come to Christ and put your life down before him and really start living, friends. That's what a great many of us... He says, I've come that you might have life, that you might have it more abundantly. He wants to give you a life that's a life indeed. By the way, are you living that life today? Now, we have come to a very remarkable section of the epistle of James. A cursory reading might give the impression that James is teaching a socialistic doctrine of soak the rich or let's divide the wealth. But on the contrary, a careful reading 
reveals that is not true. The Roman world of James' day is not like the modern world in which we live. The lifestyles are entirely different. There was no middle class in the days of James. There were the very rich, the filthy rich, and the very poor, the filthy poor, if you please. In James' day, the majority of Christians came from the very poor and slave class. They had no great cathedrals on boulevards, and they weren't building a kingdom as many of these great churches spending millions today. Now, first of all, he's not condemning riches as such, and we should understand that. Riches in themselves are not immoral. They're not moral either. They're just unmoral or amoral, as some like to put it. Now, the Bible actually does not condemn money. A great many people get that viewpoint that there's something dirty about money. They call it, you know, filthy lucre. Well, Scripture doesn't quite say that. It's the love of money that is the root of all evil. The problem is not in the coin. The problem is in the heart of men and women. That's where the problem is. It's the love of money that's the root of all evil. Now, James is not condemning people just because they are rich. It's their relationship to riches. It's how they got it and what they do with it after they get it. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ had a great deal to say about money and about riches. He gave two very definite parables that I think will help us to understand what James is saying. And then there's the third one about the unjust steward who worked for a rich man, and the rich man condemned him for being dishonest, actually which is a very strange parable, by the way, and I hope we'll have an occasion to refer to it. But in the 16th chapter of Luke's gospel at verse 19, and I'm not going to turn and read it, you have there the story, which I think is actual happening, of the poor man Lazarus, the beggar, and the rich man. And that parable has to do actually with the way he made it. He was living it up, as we shall see. But do you see, this man was put at his gate. That's interesting. Who put him there? I don't know. But they put him at his gate because somehow or another, that man was responsible. And the rich man let him have the crumbs from his table. And I'm willing to wager that that rich man took those crumbs off his income tax well, anyway, the dogs licked the beggar's sowers, we are told. And the rich man, we are told, fared sumptuously. He put on the dog. And it was the way this man got rich that makes him in some way responsible for the beggar's condition. And somebody says, well, what makes you think that? Well, where did they go after death? By the way, we are going through right now a cycle. We go through different cycles, and death is the subject. 
Some time ago it was angels, then it was demons. Everybody's running around swatting demons. And then it was tongues, the Glossolia movement at first. And my, we are great in this country. We are the people that go for the yo-yo. We had that period, and then we had the hula hoop. And now we go through other little things. We're that type of folk. Well, now the Lord Jesus gave another parable about a rich man. And that's in Luke 12, and he's the one that built bigger barns. At least he had plans to. He never did build them because he died. And the Lord Jesus Christ never condemned that man for being rich. When he stated it, he just stated it as a fact. And to all outward appearances, he was a good man. He was an honest citizen. He hoarded his money. He wanted to live it up in his old age. And he gave no thought to eternity. And the Lord Jesus called him a fool. Actually, he was more than covetous. He was selfish. He was hoarding his money for himself. And that, may I say, is a form of idolatry. Now, we are told that covetousness is idolatry. But that's where you worship things. Selfishness is where you worship yourself. And there's a lot of that going on today. In fact, it's even being taught as being a Christian thing, that you to have great respect for yourself and confidence in yourself. Well, the Lord Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. Well, then we have that parable of the unjust steward. And we see there the wise use of money by Christians. Now, God holds man responsible not only for how he makes his money, but how he spends his money. Now, there's another matter I think we should consider before we examine the text. Are the rich whom James is condemning here, are they Christians or are they non-Christian? Are they the godly rich or the godless rich? And you will find that there is some controversy among commentators, and there's, of course, a difference of opinion. Well, I personally believe that they are the godless rich. And I follow one that I respect a great deal, and that is John Calvin. Calvin's judgment was that these six verses here are not so much an admonition as a denunciation, wherein the apostle and I'm quoting now, "...doth not so much direct them what to do as foretell what should be done to them that the godly might be encouraged to be more patient under their oppression, for that the apostle inferreth plainly." And I think that's very clear here. And we're going to see next time, we're going to see that he will answer this, why it is the godless rich. Now, why does James turn from talking to the godly and talk to the ungodly here? Well, the fact of the matter is, he doesn't change. He's still talking to the ungodly. How can that be when it's so obviously speaking to the rich? Well, as he speaks to the ungodly, He's telling the godly that they live in a godless world where the godless rich 
will impose certain hardships upon them, take advantage of them, and they will be at the mercy of these wicked rich men. James spells this out in detail, as we shall see when we examine the text. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ had already made a general reference to this. He says, "...in the world ye shall have tribulation, trouble, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world." Now, the godly are to be patient in these circumstances, knowing that God will deal with the godless rich in eternity, but not here. And that's made very clear here in verse 6. Ye have condemned and killed the just. God condemns them, you see. And he doth not resist you. God permits them so it seems to get by with it. May I say to you this rather startling statement, I would rather go to hell, if I was going there, a poor man rather than a rich man. I'll tell you that. And very candidly, I thank God, and that's something to be thankful for today. I'm not going there, and it's because Christ died for me. Now, by the way, David was troubled by this, as you probably well know. Over in Psalm 37, it bothered him no end. Over in Psalm 37, and I'll turn there and read verse 35. He says, "...I've seen the wicked in great power." and spreading himself like a green bay tree. Yet he passed away, and lo, he was not. Yea, I sought him, but he could not be found. And he also says something about, well, I'll have to turn back and read that. To verse 7, and he gives the same advice James is going to give. Rest in the Lord. Wait patiently for him. Fret not thyself because of him who prospereth, in his way, because of the man who bringeth wicked devices to pass. Now, that's a tremendous statement, by the way. And he's speaking of the godless rich, you see. That bothered David until he went in the temple and he saw that in time God would deal with this sort of thing. Now, let's come to the text. Verse 1. "'Come now, ye rich men, weep and howl.'" for your miseries that shall come upon you. Now, there's another problem we must face as we get into this passage. Is he speaking to the rich in his day? The godless rich in his day or some future day? Well, first of all, he is giving a warning to the rich in his day. And it has an application, I think, for any day, and certainly our day. James wrote this epistle, we believe, somewhere between 45 and 50 A.D. Many give the date now as 60 A.D. Well, regardless of the date, the destruction of Jerusalem was in the near future. For in 70 A.D., Titus the Roman came and destroyed Jerusalem as it had never been destroyed before. He plowed it under he hated Christians, and he hated Jews, and they both were in that city. And believe me, when he got through, there were no rich Jews left. They were either killed or had been put in slavery. And all the riches were destroyed or lost 
are confiscated. And so he can make these strong statements uh, in view of what was coming. The Lord Jesus said that before he left. He said that you're going to see Jerusalem compassed with armies. And it was fulfilled in 70 A.D. Now, in verse 2, he says, "...your riches are corrupted, and your garments are moth-eaten." Also, in light of the coming of Christ, they are warned that all the riches of the world will come to naught. Now, this obviously would not impress a godless rich person in that day any more than it would today. But he would know that the future is uncertain for him in that day as many today see it that way. There's a danger of a panic, a crash, a drought, or a depression. And that's been the order of the day since men started to mint money. They have been good years and they've been bad years. Now, some of us can remember the depression of the early 30s when millionaires by the score leaped out of the windows of skyscrapers and many rich found they became paupers overnight. And some former millionaires, they sold apples at street corners and gilt-edged stocks and bonds and safety deposit boxes were not worth the paper it was written on. Somebody says, how could gold and silver in a safety deposit box. How could it rust? How could you use it? Well, when you got it in gilt-edged stocks, it can turn to just paper. That's all. And that's what it did in that day. Now, he says here in verse 3, "...your gold and silver are rusted, and the rust of them shall be a witness against you, and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. You have heaped treasures together for the last day." You know how your silver and gold's going to rust? Because you're going to decay. That's the picture here. This is the judgment upon the godless rich, like the men in these two parables that Christ gave. Death came to both of them, and death certainly separates a rich man from his money. It said when one of the Vanderbilts was dying at that particular time, that the family was outside in the outer room waiting. And when the lawyer and the doctor came out, one of the more outspoken members of the family stepped up to the lawyer and said to him, how much did he leave? And he said to him, well, he said he left it all. He didn't take any of it with him. May I say to you, that's the way that it rusts. Let me tell you, a gentleman was being shown through a magnificent grounds of a rich nobleman's estate. And he said to the owner, he says, Well, my Lord, all this in heaven would be noble, but this in hell would be terrible. And what James is doing here is condemning the godless rich for hoarding money. Does gold and silver rust? Well, remember those gilt-edged bonds. Remember the real estate that many bought in Florida in 1925. A lot of it was underwater then, and it's watered stock for a long time. Now, somebody says, but today real estate is zooming up again. Well, remember, it's boom today, bust tomorrow. 
And it can happen again. When a man makes a million, he's not satisfied with that. He wants to make two million. And it's like drinking seawater. The more you drink, the thirstier you get. And they just keep on making millions. But it doesn't make them happier. We had here in California, I think, two fine examples of it. Two men that were billionaires. And apparently both of them were remarkable men. Both of them built great empires. Howard Hughes was one of them, but his last days, from all we can learn, he was a recluse and a sick man, and he couldn't have been happy those years. All that money, it just didn't seem to do him very much good. And J. Paul Getty, another man, it was reported in the press that he made the statement, he said, I'd give all my wealth for just one happy marriage. How tragic. Both of them are gone now, but what an example they've left. Now, God gave wealth not to be hoarded, but to be dispensed. The rich man in the parable, he built greater barns. He wanted to store his goods and his fruit. But you see, you can only eat so much. You can drink so much. You can only wear one suit at a time. And after the first million, why, when you start gathering more millions, they're just like a pile of rocks. That's all they are. You can't eat them. You can't do anything with it. It's just something that you can't in any ways use. Now, therefore, that's the reason that our Lord called that man a fool. When you fill your barn, I think the Lord meant, why didn't he go over and fill somebody else's barn? I know a Christian farmer up in the fruit belt here in California. He talked to me last year about this. He said, you know, we had to, because of the organization he's in, dump our fruit to keep the prices up. And he said, actually, tons of fruit. And right down here in Los Angeles, there were a lot of folk that could have enjoyed that. That's the picture that we have, friends. And again, let me give you a quotation here that I think is quite remarkable. These are two little stories that have come my way. This was said by a very young person, very impatiently. It says, I'm living now, and I mean to have a good time. The hereafter isn't here yet. And a very wise companion said to this young person, No, only the first part of it. But I shouldn't wonder if the here had a good deal to do with shaping the after, the hereafter. And there was an irreligious farmer, a very godless farmer, and he gloried in the fact that he was an agnostic. He wrote a letter to a local newspaper saying, Sir, I've been trying an experiment with a field of mine. I plowed it on Sunday. I planted it on Sunday. I cultivated it on Sunday. I reaped it on Sunday. I hauled it into my barn on Sunday. And now, Mr. Editor, what is the result? I have more bushels to the acre in that field than any of my neighbors have had this October. And the editor quoted the letter and then put down under it, and the editor wasn't a religious man. He put this down under it. God does not always settle his accounts in October. You see, God has eternity ahead of him.
Now, will you notice here verse 4, and we must move along now. Behold the hire of the laborers who have reaped down your fields, which is of you kept back by fraud, crieth, and the cries of them who have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. Now, he condemns the godless rich not only for hoarding, but for making money in a dishonest way. They've robbed the poor to get rich. You see, that rich man let fall some crumbs. What a message is that? That beggar had been placed at his gate. Why? A rich man was responsible. And the thing is that you find the book of Proverbs still talks in the language like this. In Proverbs 22, verse 7, it says, The rich ruleth over the poor, and the borrower is servant to the lender. What a picture that is given here of this. And therefore, God condemns that. The godless man who makes his money in a dishonest way, especially by putting down the children of God. And God does nothing now, but he's going to do something later. Now, will you listen at verse 5? And let me read it. Ye have lived in pleasure on the earth and been wanton. You have nourished your hearts as in the day of slaughter. And this is another point of condemnation. They spent money in a sinful manner. Not only hoard or squander it. Well, they, like the miser. The miser says dollars are flat. The stack them, spend thrifts as they're round to roll them. And either way, why, you go wrong. And again, let me quote a proverb. Proverbs 18, verse 11. And it reads, The rich man's wealth is a strong city, and as a high wall is his own conceit. And then again in 28, 11, and I read this verse, The rich man is wise in his own conceit, but the poor that hath understanding searcheth him out. Now, that was the picture of that rich man. These were two godless rich men that the Lord Jesus told about, and both wanted to live it up. One wanted to store it away and live it up in his old age, and he was going to enjoy it then. The rich man in Lazarus' day, he was living it up at the time. And he did live it up. Now, if you've decided to live for this life only, God says you're a fool. And be sure and live it up if that's what you're going to do. Now, verse 6 says, You've condemned and killed the just. He doth not resist you. God does not interfere now. This is the kind of world we live in. It's a big, bad world. Dog eats dog. And going up the ladder of riches... You can step on somebody's fingers. And let me say this, you're not going to change this world, but God is. And there's a lesson here for the rich man who is a Christian. How big is your bank account if Jesus came right now? Well, do you be willing to let him look in your safety deposit box? Because that's what he's going to do one of these days. I have something to be thankful for. Proverbs 38 says, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food convenient for me. Because if I was rich, I'd forget God. If I was poor, I might steal. 
thank God that I can go down the middle of the road today in the middle class. Now, there are two things about the rich that God condemns. He does not condemn riches as such, that if they make their riches by stepping on the hands of those beneath them on the ladder of riches and hurting them, then God will judge that. And that is a word of warning to, I think, rich men, great corporations, and great labor unions, and great church organizations also. Now, not only the way they make it, but the way that they spend it. And today, I would say that the great problem in the world is not actually racial. I don't think it's that at all. In fact, I've never felt that. The color of a man's skin and his race just doesn't divide the human family. We're all members of the human family, and it's a pretty bad family. The whole kit and caboodle of us are, regardless of that. We're in sin. We've been conceived in sin. Sin is in our heart. We have an old nature. And that hasn't anything in the world to do with race at all. But there is a tremendous division today. And it's not political division. The great division today, and it's getting wider, is rich and poor and the power of the rich. Now, I don't know this. I'm not on the end by any means. But when we look about us today at the governments of the world, and our own particular government, it hasn't anything to do with a party, because the two parties are as much alike as two black-eyed peas. They're just not different, that's all. But it would look as if there is a power structure above that manipulates government today, manipulates the economy And we hear a great deal about the freedom of the press, and their freedom is to brainwash people, and there's supposed to be freedom of speech and freedom of religion. But you try to get this program on your most powerful radio station in any city in the country during the week and see how far you get. You find out it wouldn't make any difference how much money you had. You just couldn't buy time to teach the Word of God. We only get on certain stations and thank God for them. But may I say to you that the important thing to note here is he doth not resist you. Now, the rich are getting by with it today, and the sinner's getting by with it. And that disturbed David at first. And David said, why, they spread themselves like a green bay tree. And not only that, he says, they have no changes. David says, I do something wrong and I get punished for it. God takes me to the woodshed. And believe me, I have a lot of changes. But the king of Babylon, he just keeps right on going. Nothing stops him. And that is actually God's judgment on them. He's not judging now. But if you'll notice the end of which they come, it's tremendous today. And riches have never really brought happiness to mankind at all. And that's the important thing that he's talking about here. And the point then is, God's not resisting them. Then what can believers do? What can we do today? Should we join some organization? Should we go all out for good government? Well, I think that certainly 
We ought to be for good government, and we ought to be interested, I think, today in trying to elect the best man, if the word best can be applied to politicians anymore. You wonder today, what can we do? Well, now listen to God. He's speaking now to his own children. Verse 7, Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Now, the Word of God has a great deal to say. And when we were in the prophets, I called attention to it. God has a great deal to say about the fact that when Christ comes and sets up his kingdom, the poor are going to get a good deal and a right deal, an honest deal, for the first time in the history of the world. And that is the thing that all of the prophets mentioned, by the way, and the thing that they emphasize. But with righteousness shall he judge the poor. And that's in Isaiah 11, 4. And believe me, the poor haven't had a good deal yet. And if you think changing a party is going to somehow or another give the poor a good deal, and I don't mean to be a pessimist, but friends, you're just not going to look to mankind. That is, men that are grasping for power and money. I know what they say, but they're not going to take care of them. Our only hope is in Jesus Christ. And if there's any group of people that ought to be interested in the Lord Jesus Christ, it ought to be the poor people of this world, because he's going to give them the right kind of a deal when he establishes his kingdom here upon the earth. Be patient, therefore, brethren, under the coming of the Lord. This is a tremendous statement you see here. The coming of Christ will correct the wrongs of the world. And we could multiply these scriptures again and again, all of the prophets. And even when he came, he made it clear that the poor under his reign, read the Sermon on the Mount, and that will be the law of the kingdom, and you'll find out that he intends to give the poor a square deal. Read Matthew 6, 19-24. I'll not take time to turn there at all. He says, Now, behold, the farmer waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth, and hath long patience for it, until he receive the early and the latter rain. And we'll be talking about that when we get back to the book of Joel, by the way. And that's where we go next time. When we finish James today, next time we go back to the little prophecy of Joel. And he has something to say about the early and latter rain. I'll talk about it there. In other words, the farmer, when he plants his grain, doesn't go out the next morning to see if it's time to harvest it. Be patient. The harvest is coming. And I would like to say this very carefully. We hear a great deal today that what we do when we go out in evangelism and give out the Word of God that we're harvesting. Now, I disagree with that figure of speech. The Lord Jesus was at the end of the age when he said, and he was sending out, you remember, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That was not worldwide. He says, the harvest is great, the laborers are few. They were at the end of the age of law. And every age that's ended is ended in judgment. This age will end in a judgment from God. That will be the harvest. You remember in the 13th chapter of Matthew, he said that he'll send his angels and 
They'll do the gathering in for the harvest. He is the one that separates the tares and the wheat. You see, now what are we doing? Well, he's also a sower, and today he's sowing seed. And I consider that my business. I'm on radio, and I can't ask you to put up your hand, and I don't see any value putting your hand on a radio either. There's nothing in the world I can do but just sit right here, friends, and attempt to teach the Word of God. I'm just sowing seed, and some falls on good ground. Hallelujah for that. Maybe not too much of it, but it falls on good ground. Our business is sowing seed. Now, will you notice, verse 8, "...be ye also patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth near." We should live in the light. That's the teaching all the way through Scripture of the coming of Christ. Now, he says, "...murmur not one against another, brethren, lest ye be judged. Behold, the judge standeth before the door." You know, it's going to be very embarrassing if the Lord should come while you are sitting in judgment on somebody else and you find yourself in his presence and he's judging you. That would be very embarrassing. And what he's really saying here is set your house in order. Get your affairs straightened out before he comes because he's going to straighten them out if you don't. And that's very important for believers. Verse 10, "...take my brethren the prophets who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering, affliction, and of patience." Remember that prophets are an example to us. They suffered, and they were patient. And now he gives us here an example. Verse 11, "...behold, we count them happy who endure. You've heard of the patience of Job." And that's about all that I know about Job's patience. I've heard of it. I feel Job is very impatient as you go through the book of Job. But actually, he learned patience. He was an impatient man, but he learned patience. You've heard of the patience of Job and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. You have to go to the end of this man's trial, and you find out he learned a great lesson. Now he says, but above all Things, my brethren, swear not neither by heaven, neither by the earth, neither by any other oath, but let your yea be yea, your nay nay, lest ye fall into condemnation. In other words, my friend, when you say something that you're going to do, it ought to be on the same plane as if you were in a courtroom and had taken an oath and you were under oath to tell the truth. Your conversation ought to be like that. And I remember my dad went to the bank to borrow money one year to get the cotton gin started. And the banker was busy, and he told him, he says, go ahead. Well, he says, I haven't signed the note. And I never shall for what the banker said to my dad. He says, if you say you'll do it, that's just as good as if you signed it. So come in later and sign up. May I say to you, a man's word ought to be just that good. And some people, even when they take an oath on a stack of Bibles, you have a little trouble with them. Verse 13, "...is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms." Now, the afflicted are to pray, and the merry are to sing psalms. And that ought to answer the question whether a song leader has a right to get up in a service and say to everybody, and everybody sit up and smile. And I used to have a song leader like that years ago, and I got rid of him. I told him, don't you know that here on Thursday night that there are people that come in 
And I said, as I look out there, I see one man, he's a doctor, and he's been busy all day with patients, sick people, and there's a buyer for a department store. I see her sitting out there. She's weary. She's tired. And you tell her that she's got to sit up and smile. No, you don't have to sit up and smile. The afflicted are to pray. The merry are to sing psalms. Don't put on a front. Some people go to church and then try to work up some sort of an enthusiasm. May I say to you, we ought to have that great passion and enthusiasm before we go there. But we don't have to sit up and smile for some song leader. And chances are he's been loafing all day. Verse 14, Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, I have a great many wonderful Pentecostal folk, and it may be that you want to just tune me out at this particular time, because I want to say something here that I feel is very important. There's a tragic story that happened in a little town near Los Angeles where a man threw away the insulin that his little son was supposed to take because he said God was going to heal him. And the little fellow died. And then the man must be very fanatic. He said, the Lord is going to raise him up because he had been anointed. Now, the leaders of the denomination that he belongs to said that he was never told anything like that. And I believe it because I have had the privilege of meeting on several occasions in the past with the man who taught theology in one of the outstanding Pentecostal schools. And he told this to me. He said, Dr. McGee, I want you to know I agree with you when you were healed of cancer that just anybody can be healed. It has to be the will of God. And when they say that, I'm right with them because I stand in that category. Now, the question arises, is it God's will for every Christian who gets sick that he should be healed? And if your answer is yes, and you follow that line of thinking to the logical conclusion, you must agree that that person, that Christian, will never die. And he'll be healed of every disease that causes death. And may I say that's ridiculous, because if you do get healed today, I've been healed of cancer, but I expect to die if the Lord doesn't come in the meantime. May I say, I feel it's a cruel hoax, one of the most cruel. And it's been perpetrated on many simple believers that it's God's will for all to be healed. Well, what he's saying here is something quite interesting. It says, and he makes it very clear, Now I want to read it, and it's not actually a question here. Someone is sick among you. Not a question. Someone's sick among you. What do you do? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him. All right? Let the elders come and pray. That's one thing. And the thing that is separate, let him be anointed with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, this word anoint, there are two words that are translated anoint. And one of them is used in a religious sense. And that word in the Greek is cryo. And we get from that our word Christos. Christ was the anointed one. And it means to anoint with some scented unguent or oil. And it's only used five times in the New Testament. And it refers to the anointing of Christ by God the Father with the Holy Spirit. 
Now there's another word, and that's the word that's used here. It's alepho. And you find that used many times. I think that I have one reference here, and that's all I'll give you. In Matthew 6, verse 17, the Lord Jesus said, "...but thou, when thou fastest, anoint thine head, and wash thy face." Now, all that means is to just put a little Braille cream vitalis on your hair so that you look all right. Now, may I say this very carefully. A lapho is the mundane and profane, according to Trench. And the other word, creo, means it's a sacred and religious word. Here, it is a lapho, and all it means to rub with oil. You remember that when Hezekiah was sick, they put something on that boil that he had, an oil on it. And actually what James is saying in a very practical way is, call for the elders to pray and go to the best doctor that you can get. That's exactly what he's saying. You are to use medicine. And this idea that you think it's a religious ceremony to put a little oil out of a bottle on somebody's head as if that has some merit, has no merit whatsoever. And James is just too practical to use that. But he's practical enough, and he was a man of prayer. He says, call for the elders to pray. And that's the reason. When I got sick, I put it out on the radio. I believe in the priesthood of believers, and I believe before God, as he makes it clear here, about Elijah. And I'm going to drop down to that now. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick. And I believe that you're to call on God's people to pray for you. And the Lord shall raise him up. And if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. But confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. Now, I don't have time to talk about that. You confess your sins to God, but faults one to another. If I've injured you, then I ought to confess that to you. But I'm not confessing my sin to you, and I don't want you confessing your sin to me. You confess that to the Lord. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just. I can't forgive sins. Now, will you notice? He goes on, "...the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much." Now, James was a great man of prayer. He was called Old Camelnese. And there's another great man of prayer. Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are. And he prayed earnestly that it might not rain. It rained not on the earth's space of three years, six months. Can you imagine that? Elijah was a weatherman for three years and held back the rain. Didn't come till he prayed. You are the same kind of a person today. Elijah wasn't a superman, man of like passions, but a man that prayed with passion. And that's the kind of praying we need today. And he says, Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth, one convert him, let him know that he who converted the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death, shall hide a multitude of sins. Not in the one who leads him to Christ, but of the one that has come to Christ, his sins now are forgiven him. Well, that finishes the epistle of James. We meet you next time. Until then, may God richly bless you, my beloved.